Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. Today I'm joined by the author of the new book, The Women Are Up To Something, Professor Benjamin Lipscomb. It's the story of four remarkable women who shaped the intellectual history of the 20th century, Elizabeth Anscombe, Philippa Foote, Mary Midgley, and of course, Iris Murdoch. Uh, Benjamin's new book shows us how these women work to make a place for themselves in a male-dominated world, and the book presents the first sustained engagement with these women's contribution with the critique and the alternative they framed. And the work draws on a cluster of recently opened archives and extensive correspondence and interviews with those who knew them best. And he traces the lives and ideas of four friends who gave us a better way to think about ethics and indeed ourselves. Uh, Benjamin is Professor of Philosophy and Director of the Honours Programme at Houghton College, and he lives with his family in Fillmore, New York, when his teaching doesn't call him to London. So Ben, welcome to the podcast. I'm really interested um, in hearing about the genesis, really, of the project, because I know this has been uh, something that you've been undertaking uh, for quite some time. Do you want to tell us about the, uh, the very beginnings of, of where you started? Sure. Miles, it's great to be on here. Uh, Thanks so for thank coming you for, on. Thank you for having me. Um, I was introduced to the writings of three of the four, Anscombe, uh, Foote, and Murdoch, by my graduate advisor at the mm -hmm. University of Notre Dame. Uh, I hadn't read them as undergraduate, uh, but in my first year of grad school, I had a contemporary 20th century ethics uh, survey, and David Solomon, who had spent some time studying with Foote uh, in the 1970s, and was very committed to the virtue ethics revolution that she particularly is associated with, um, he assigned all three of them. So that's my first introduction. And I both found the ideas compelling and found them to be such brilliant writers, all three of them, Anson mm. and Foote, as well as, of course, Murdoch. Uh, and then it was a few years after that, uh, after I'd gotten out of grad school, and was in my first job here at Houghton. Um, but I was back visiting uh, with David and his wife, Mary Lou, uh, on a trip through Indiana and picked up off of his shelves uh, one night as I was staying over there, uh, Mary Mitchley's memoir, uh, The Owl of Minerva, which is just brilliant. I knew that there were connections among the three whose writings I'd encountered already, uh, but I didn't have a sense of quite what the story was until I read Mitchley's memoir. And at that point I thought there should be, someone should tell this at fuller length than Mary just putting in, you know, a couple of sections of a chapter, uh, that there's something larger here that would be about them and their friendship and their ideas. And that's when I got it turning around in my mind. So late aughts, and uh, when about was that date wise? Because I know it's been going on for quite some time. Yeah, so uh, the memoir came out 2005, I want to say. Yeah. 2006. And I saw it in 2007, I'm pretty right. sure it was. Uh, and 2008, 2009, I was putting together a proposal for a sabbatical from yeah. Houghton so that I could go through and read everything that I possibly could that each of the four of them had written, start doing some background contextual work, everything that was going to need to be foundational. Sure. I mean, so a real labor of love over, you know, 10, 12 years at least. Where did you start with, um, with each of them? Where did I start with each of them? Yeah. Um, how do you mean? I suppose um, when we usually think of Murdoch, we usually go, to sovereignty of goods, when we start with um, hmm. and we might start with modern moral philosophy. Um, it, were those your kind of uh, ways into to, to these uh, these philosophers, or were there other ways in for you? Okay, yes, no, that's right. Um, because again, my introduction to each of the three uh, who are most famous within uh, academic uh, philosophical circles. Uh, was in this course that I took. And so that was Moral Arguments and Moral Beliefs uh, by Philippa Foote, Modern Moral Philosophy uh, by Anscombe, and uh, one or two of the essays, not Idea of Perfection, but I think the other two essays uh, from Sovereignty of Good. 
Uh, and Midgley, the first thing I read was the memoir. And yeah. then I thought, I need to read more of what this uh, woman so, wrote. And Beast so, and Man, perhaps. Was that the, was yeah, that the first? Beast and Man and, and yeah. Wickedness uh, early on, and then Animals and Why They Matter, and I was off to the races. With the other three, uh, it was a long time before I read Murdoch's fiction, uh, and I read through about the first half of it. I, yeah. uh, because the principal focus, chronologically for me, is through about when... Midgley finally began her publishing career. I've got an epilogue, a coda chapter at the end of the book that traces from there forward what happened with the rest of their lives. But uh, I was focused on getting to there. So I read through Murdoch's novels uh, over the course of that sabbatical year uh, uh, up to that point, up to the sea, the sea. Uh, and that was a delight, sort of really seeing them in close succession and getting a sense of the development of yeah. her craft there. Um, but I, I want to mention, I think, my favorite secondary introduction was to Anscombe's uh, BBC talk. Uh, now it's in uh, one of the collections brought out by her daughter, uh, uh, papers left over that hadn't been published elsewhere, but it's called uh, Oxford Moral Philosophy, Does It Corrupt the Youth? And stirred <laughs> up this huge tempest. Uh, uh, I simply had to look it up in uh, a library from its original publication in the BBC Listener, but uh, that gave me a sense of her personality as modern moral philosophy didn't. Sure. So you're drawing these, in, in some regards, they start off in, in, in a similar in a similar way and what they're what they're doing and and how they're thinking i suppose um, and also but then they do kind of depart certainly murdoch departs in, in a very interesting way being perhaps the only um, person that takes plato, um, plato seriously and, and and develops and develops from there but what we what are you seeing as the connections because in some regards some of this work is quite dis some of their work is quite disparate so what kind of connections are you make were you making to begin with when you're when you're reading their work hmm. all three of them took up a position uh, quite early uh, against the thinking about fact and value that A.J. Ayer had given popular expression to and that underlay also what was as close to an orthodoxy uh, as anything in moral philosophy at uh, in the mid-20th century, Richard Hare's uh, universal prescriptivism. Uh, both these theories and those of a number of their uh, male contemporaries take for granted a kind of sundering between fact and value, mm -hmm. uh, seeing that the world is not going to guide us how to live. We simply have to make these choices in which we commit ourselves and create, invent, construct values for ourselves. This picture that Murdoch uh, particularly goes after uh, in Vision and Choice, in Morality, and in the essays in The Sovereignty of Good. Um, but this is also what Foote and Anscombe were attacking, and all three of them, this, some people would think this is less true for Murdoch, uh, but I think it's as true, though she uses a different vocabulary to express it, all three of uh, uh, those uh, uh, those authors turn to the vocabulary, the pre-modern vocabulary of virtues and vices. They take inspiration from different ancient philosophers, uh, Murdoch much less influenced by uh, Aristotle uh, and more so by Plato, but all of them focus on this question of what kind of animals are we? What kind of creatures are we? Let's know ourselves mm. and what our weaknesses are, what kind of processes of formation help us to be better than we are. And Anscombe and Foote look to Aristotle and Aquinas for that, and Murdoch looks more to Plato. But uh, all three of them, it's a little strange to think of Murdoch as a naturalist uh, in ethics, but in this respect, she is. There's that passage where she talks about Freud having really understood the kind of mechanism of our uh, of our ego and prodding us to think more about how do we cultivate ourselves how do we steer ourselves and um 
a lot of people don't know this, but uh, early on, Foote and Murdoch, in I think 1952, thereabouts, taught a graduate course together at Oxford, mm -hmm. which was um, about virtues and vices. Yeah, in indeed. I think, um, I'm not sure if Conradi mentions that in the biography, but it's certainly something that um, I think deserves more investigation. Indeed, you talk about this uh, in, in the book. I think it's worth uh, mentioning to listeners that um, you don't need to come to your book with any um, degrees or postgraduate work in philosophy. It is very accessible. Um, was that a difficult, um, difficult writing process for you, I suppose? Um, to, to, to make some of these quite tough ideas accessible to uh, a generalized audience? It took a long time to get the voice right. Um, I was doing preparatory exercises, giving lectures everywhere that I could get invited <laughs> for <laughs> the opportunity to try to start putting uh, things into prose. Uh, but I junked a lot of it. Most of this book got written, written, written uh, over the course of pandemic. I got my contract with Oxford in March of 2020, really, and uh, I'm very grateful to my editor, Lucy Randall, who departed from her usual practice of just, you know, wanting to see the thing at the end and then make comments. I said, may I send you installments like a Victorian <laughs> serial? Yeah. I, uh, I sent her chapter after chapter, and the first few she had... Uh, a lot of really useful and critical suggestions about, okay, you're getting too in the weeds here. Uh, can you take a different approach with your tone there? But by chapters three, four, I was really finding my voice for it. Um, but this is not what graduate school in philosophy, I suspect any research uh, graduate program, this is not what it prepares you for, what your experience in literature was, Miles, uh, you could say. But, uh, Life writing is is a very different kind of exercise. I tried to find people to emulate. Peter Conradi's one of them. Uh, Sarah Bakewell's another. Alan Jacobs, people who are talking about ideas and talking about the characters of the people uh, who are producing them and engaging with them. And yeah, I felt like I was doing a distance apprenticeship with everybody who'd done a good book already, like the one I was hoping to make. And, and they're difficult books to put together, aren't they, as well? And it's, as, as, as you say, you started, you know, the, the, the major task in early 2020. But uh, prior to that, the amount of reading you've done, but also the, the, the travel, the archival work, the letters, mm -hmm. what, what started your thought process that actually this shouldn't be a work of academic philosophy, but also needed to include a lot of biographical biographical material and needed to be accessible. What kind of changed the, the, the mode of delivery, I suppose? Well, I would put it maybe a little differently that I just wasn't very good at it uh, at first. Uh, mm. It took a lot of practice and a lot of feedback to find a voice for this kind of writing. I knew that I wanted it to be a fusion from almost the first. Okay. And Partly, that's um, that was, I don't want to say self-protective, but I work at a college where, uh, a little bit like uh, what I've read in the, uh, the stories uh, and other documents of Elizabeth Anscombe and Philippa Foote, above all, uh, a little bit like an Oxford college uh, in the 1950s, the teaching and the institutional service requirements are significant. I'm not in a position for my scholarship to be that keeping on the cutting edge of technical discussions in a subfield of philosophy uh, that I can't keep up on the journals and sort of constantly be back and forth uh, with uh, my interlocutors refining ideas in, in subtle ways. Uh, I needed a longer, slower project, and I was just so taken with these characters, and I thought, very shortly after encountering Mitchley's memoir, I thought, you know, this might be something that could fall to me, uh, that if it's to be about ideas in a significant way, someone who's pretty well-versed in philosophy is going to have to write it. A journalist, uh, a kind of 
historian of the 20th century generally is not going to be interested enough in the philosophy to tell the story I want to tell where the philosophy is integral. But I thought it's also the case that the kind of person working at a research one institution uh, and going for tenure or building reputation there, they're not going to be interested enough in the stories or they're not going to feel like they can take the time to write a book that's about the stories and the characters. So maybe this will be just enough betwixt and between yeah. that I can take 10 or 12 years at it <laughs> and not have four books have come out already by the time I can get it done. Sure. And they haven't, which is <laughs> hopefully nobody had quite the same idea that you did. Um, I'd so, so hoped to have it out by the centenary uh, in 2019. Uh, and it didn't happen. Uh, and I know um, my friends, uh, uh, Rachel uh, Weissman and Claire McCool, who have uh, a book I'm really looking forward to reading coming out on the same quartet uh, in February. Uh, we all would have liked to hit 2019, sure. but uh, instead this is the zeitgeisty moment. <laughs> sure, yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm, I'm sure your, your work and, and their work, Metaphysical Animals, which is coming out in uh, the chat next year, early next year will be uh, you know pretty complimentary. Um, I think they will I can, be. So I, can, I, I think I can say that having read both. Um, so you, you you get the idea, you, you read the philosophy and you think it needs to have a lot of biographical elements, it needs to engage with um, archival materials. Where, where, do you, where do you start? It's such a huge project with these four, four women who've, who've written so much. How do you set the parameters and where mm. do you go with, with the research once you've you know, read the materials that are easily available? It's a good question. Um, yeah, the first thing was to gather the easily available and the not easily available and read through all of it before I had the opportunity really to travel. Um, but then I tried to put myself, to get myself into conversation with people who would know what there is, um, who would know what was out there. So I contacted Peter Conradi early on and said, could I meet with you? I'm trying to do this thing I don't know how to do, but I know that you do. Um, and I was aware already, uh, you know, uh, checking in on where are their major deposits, where are their major archives. At that time, it was only uh, the Iris Murdoch archives at Kingston, uh, Philippa Foote's papers. Uh, Philippa Foote was still alive, although not well at all, when I started work on this. And so uh, Leslie Brown, her executor, had not put her papers on deposit at Somerville yet, the Collegium. Uh, Institute hadn't yet received the Anscombe trove, um, and the the Mitchley Archive at Durham, of course, uh, didn't exist. So I was going to Kingston, and I was talking to Peter. I went to a memorial event for Philippa Foot uh, that I got an invitation. You know, uh, Peter yeah. suggested you you might come to this, uh, and uh, and so. I inquired and went to that and met some people who were really useful in pointing me toward things that would be in the Bodleian and elsewhere. Um, early on, I can't remember who gave me the tip or if I just thought, I'm going to see what the BBC has. But uh, I spent a lot of time in the Written Archives Center uh, at the BBC. And at this point, I started to have enough contacts that I would have people suggest things to me. Have you looked at this? Have you talked to so-and-so? Mm. Um, and yeah, sat down for long conversations, not only with Mary Midgley, who I got to meet uh, a handful of times and was very grateful to have known, uh, but also, for instance, with Mary Warnock, uh, who had me to tea at the House of Lords and was a tremendous source of stories and mm. tips. Yeah, and of course, Mary Warnock's biography is also, I'm sure, um, useful and and, and talk, talks a good, good deal about some of the uh, yes some some of these philosophers as well. Um, although obviously she's a, a just slightly slightly later than later than they were. So mm -hmm. you, you you get together your your material and you've done some archival research. How do you go about sort of um, setting the framework for it? Do you where where, where do you start chronologically? I mean, where do you start and where do you end with the book? I leap around a little bit. Um that I begin, begin, uh, the first chapter starts with an anecdote uh, that I got from uh, Peter Conradi, but also uh, duplicated, uh, told also in a number of Philip Foote's interviews near the end of her life. Uh, she talks about going 
to the cinema uh, just after uh, the end of the Second World War. She and Michael were back in Oxford. She was going to be doing some graduate studies there and a little bit of teaching. He was going to be finishing his degree. And she went to the cinema to see the um, newsreels uh, showing footage uh, from Bergen-Belsen and Buchenwald from the parliamentary delegation that went there right after the liberation of the camps. And she talked about how this knocked her over backward, uh, that she was so shocked, so horrified by it. And that this came together in her mind very quickly with the reading she'd done as an undergraduate, reading PPE, um, the reading she'd done in ethics. And she thought, none of the ethical theories that I encountered as an undergraduate, none of the moral philosophy being written right now has anything satisfactory to say in the face of this evil. And she didn't know what she wanted to say other than what was being said, but she knew she was dissatisfied. Mm -hmm. So I start there. And then after a chapter about fact and value and how this dichotomy got entrenched, um, I go back actually to their uh, experiences together as undergraduates, the four of them. I talk about Oxford in wartime yeah. when, as Mary Midgley talked a good deal about, all the men were called away, or nearly all the men were called away, leaving this space, opening this window uh, for certainly the three Somervillians, uh, Foote, uh, Midgley, and Murdoch to acquire confidence and voice as philosophers in a way that they might not have a few years earlier. Mm -hmm. um, because the stereotypes in the culture and at Oxford of what a philosopher was, what a philosopher looked and sounded like, would have been masculine. I think Anscombe was going to turn out to be a philosopher no matter what anybody said or did. Uh, she was... She had that personality. She was reading about the metaphysics of causation uh, in her teenage years and trying to work out her arguments about it. But the other three, um, the mentoring, the encouragement, the opportunities that that unusual situation brought, I think convinced them of something that they weren't going to see modeled for them because they were of the first generation, really, to take this idea seriously. Yeah, and you talk a little bit about mentorship as well, don't you, particularly about Donald McKinnon, how important he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, McKinnon is pivotal here. I learned later on that he'd actually tutored Anscombe too in a couple of subjects. He wasn't, so far as I can tell, anything like as deeply formative an influence for her as he was for the other three. That Murdoch, uh, you've probably seen this letter, uh, compares following McKinnon's uh, mentorship to the disciples following Jesus. She's mm. like... You meet him and you understand how those people got up and left everything in Galilee. Uh, but Foote, too, described him as holy. And this from a woman who liked to say about herself, I'm a card-carrying atheist. Sure. Um, he, was, uh, he was hugely influential uh, on three of the four of them, at least, and maybe has an unsuspected influence on Anscombe as well. But I should say, you were asking about parameters. I try to tell a whole life for this group. It can't be complete in detail. It's selective in all sorts of ways. But after the Oxford chapter, I go back and give a sketch of each of their childhoods, just to give a sense of who were they? How did they arrive at Oxford? Yeah. Uh, and then I move forward from there to about the point that Midgley is beginning her publications in philosophy in earnest in the 1970s. And then I've got a coda chapter sort of asking what happened to them afterward? Sure. And go, going to the going to the, the various archives, I know obviously the um, as you say the, the Kingston one was easily accessible, and some of the other materials not at all. You must have found some fascinating unmined um, letters, journals, uh, and other archival sources that just haven't been looked at before. There's a lot, and you know, uh, now that these things are available, uh, people are beginning to bring them out. A couple of wonderful collections of Iris Murdoch's letters have um, uh, been published in the last half decade here. Um, but I think my favorite stuff that I saw uh, was probably in the Philippa Foot papers. 
yeah. uh, at Somerville College, that there is, Philippa Foote was a great destroyer of potential biographers' materials. Uh, Peter Conradi tells a story, uh, told me a story, I don't know if you put it in print anywhere, of her coming into a room one day where they were going to visit together. Uh, you know, uh, winds uh, reddened cheeks and uh, and breathing vigorously and excited. She'd just been out and had dumped a whole load of journals and letters and said to him, that ought to throw them off the scent. <laughs> <laughs> so, she destroyed a lot, which uh, I know uh, Rachel and Claire and I would all uh, have uh, loved to have seen. Uh, but she didn't destroy everything. And there's this book, this notebook of Juvenilia uh, in the papers at Somerville that includes this little story that she wrote. I, I quote a couple of passages from it in the book. This little story she wrote as a child, largely unpunctuated uh, in all caps, about this boy Tom and this girl Mary who are longing to go off to uh, boarding school. And on Christmas morning, their mother, Mrs. Hall, says, guess what? I'm sending you, Tom, to the Priory and you, Mary, to the nunnery. Uh, and you get to leave home. And it's sad and it's touching because uh, Foote didn't like uh, the home she grew up in very much. Mm -hmm. She was kind of longing to leave. And you see it even in this, uh, in this little story. Was there material in the archives that surprised you, that gave you a, maybe didn't change your entire outlook on one of them, but made you see them in perhaps in a different light at certain points in their life? Or maybe even their philosophy? Okay. Yeah, that as I was starting to delve seriously into Mary Midgley's work, I'd also had the opportunity to meet with her. And uh, this was before the Midgley Archive at Durham was created, but she said to me, you know, we had a first conversation and then I came back on another day and we hit it off and she seemed to have decided, okay, I trust, I trust him. And she said in that filing cabinet over there uh, in the next room, there's all of just this semi-organized stuff. Um, old scripts for BBC talks that I gave and um, letters and, and all sorts of things. So, uh, in there I found Iris Murdoch's testimonial, uh, the full testimonial for wow. Beeston Man, and also the manuscript, she alludes to it in her memoir. She, she talks about it a bit, but she doesn't go into the argument that she made, uh, in any depth. This script for a talk she didn't get to give on the BBC, uh, because her producer didn't like it very much, called Rings and Books, uh, which was about how much of a difference your biographical setting makes to your thought. Mm. And I found this both strongly confirming of, you know, this isn't just kind of human interest or drawing people into the philosophy or something, but telling the story of their lives is integral to telling the story of their thought. Uh, so reading that, I don't want to say it was entirely orienting, but it was strongly confirming uh, for me to see that. And then, oh, it was something else to encounter in the Kingston Archive, um, the notebook on the SART lecture. Yeah. Uh, and to imagine... Murdoch in Brussels with this new notebook, like the, the, the notes on the Sartre lecture are the first thing in it, other than this one quote on the inside cover from Simone de Beauvoir. Uh, so like plainly, this is this occasion for her and she's got this book and she's gonna take notes. And to think she sets herself against in the end, almost all of the theses that Sartre articulates that day, but she was plainly lit on fire by it. And so these moments where you see the situation and the character and the thought coming together, um, those were uh, those were really powerful. There's some wonderful correspondence from uh, between Elizabeth Anscombe and her producer too, around the time she was doing that uh, uh, deeply ironic uh, talk on Oxford moral philosophy. Uh, and that, uh, yeah, that too gave me a better sense of her.
and of how who she was was related to what she thought. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess you're always going to find um, fascinating material on all of them, especially as, um, well, all of them, apart from Murdoch, I suppose, have not had the um, a, a great deal of attention uh, so far. And, and gathering all this together, it, it, it strikes me, um, the amount of work that you're talking about, there must have been quite a lot that you had to sadly put to one side and think, actually, that can't make the final cut of the book. Were there things that you had to leave out that you were quite sad that so you couldn't talk about or maybe they'll find some other publication routes? Yeah, I think the um, the thing that I feel like I was the most selective about uh, and where I worry, you know, is this distorting, is that they began to have pupils quite early on and some of them were actively in conversation with their mentors about the ideas that they had taken from them. Uh, so, you know, there's a whole generation of men and women, Mary Warnock, but also Alistair McIntyre, Bernard Williams, who, they're half a generation removed uh, from, uh, from the women that I'm writing about, but sort of quickly cottoned on to the significance of these ideas they were introducing and began developing them. And so I think if somebody looked to my book saying, well, here's, you know, a complete or would be complete account of how a certain kind of naturalism and ethics got on the table there's always more people who were doing this or that bit as part of this larger unfolding project. And I'm just focusing on the four. Um, and their wider families, I think, uh, are a topic that I would have liked to have taken up. And uh, it wasn't possible to say more about Jeff Midgley, Peter Geach, sure. um, yeah. John Bailey. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, these are obviously hugely important people in their lives, and uh, but the, the, the through line of the book uh, didn't permit me, without distending uh, the shape of the thing, uh, to go much into uh, these men who were by their sides and whose projects in some ways intersected, in some ways diverged from their wives. Cool. I suppose Midgley, in, in a sense, is also um, slightly different from the others in, in that she had a, a, quite a, a long career break and doesn't publish mm -hmm. until much later. Right. Do you see that period of her life where she's not actively writing philosophical material as, um, I guess, really formative for the ideas that are going to come later? Yes, absolutely. Um, she leaves Oxford for Reading, 1950. But after a very short while, when uh, Jeff Midgley gets his offer up at Newcastle and they have to decide, are we going to go to Newcastle where there might be teaching for me down the road, or are we going to go to Reading where there's jobs for both of us, but the fit wasn't quite as good, the um, potential situation in the department uh, not as exciting, and uh, the money not as good uh, either. and. Uh, they decided to go up to Newcastle. Uh, Mary knew that she wanted to stay home uh, when her children were young. She maintained an active career as a public intellectual uh, throughout much of the 1950s, writing for New Statesman and Nation, doing reviews and essays and uh, things on the BBC, but uh, stepped away from philosophy classrooms, stepped away from philosophy journals and uh, society meetings. But what she was doing was pursuing an interest she'd had since childhood. She was always this outdoorsy kid uh, when she was young who wanted to be around the side of a pond uh, looking at, uh, at newts. And she, um, uh, she started reading in ethology, which was this new emerging field, animal behavior studies, and thought this has everything to do with what I studied as a great student uh, in Aristotle. This has everything to do with some of the ideas that my friends are exploring mm. at Oxford. And she just raided the Newcastle, at that time King's College Library, uh, for everything she could get her hands on. And that's 
what proves foundational for her career. And I think it was, the time was a gift to her, not only the time with family, but the time to be on input with no pressure to be producing anything and taking in this whole body of material that she would then bring into synthesis uh, with philosophy later on. And, you know, you have to learn a lot to be able to attempt that kind of synthesis. And she had the time for it. I think her later work, which to my mind really brings to completion the project of her friends, despite the, the time lag there, that Murdoch, Anscombe, Foote, are all chiefly critical and chiefly promissory in the things they say about what ethics ought to be like. Um, and they all say we need to attend more seriously to the kind of creatures we are and to think about what the formation of creatures such as ourselves has to involve and the men are going about it all wrong. <laughs> but Midgley's the one who knows enough biology in the end to begin uh, seriously proposing a positive uh, agenda for this yeah yeah that's, that certainly comes comes through in the in the work I, I can i can see the mary midgley reader looking down at me but uh, yes yeah i think that's probably the best uh, the best book to to pick up for for the beginner uh, mm -hmm. for me. we talked a little bit about um the influence that mckinnon had obviously they're reacting against hair and air and stuart hampshire as well um mm. their, their peers. i suppose another sort of um presence hovering over a lot of the work, especially for Anscombe and Murdoch, would be uh, Wittgenstein. And yes. do you, what's your view on, on how, on the importance of him for the four of them? His importance for Anscombe is uh, difficult to exaggerate. Um, she was his mentee uh, and uh, his translator, executor. And in some materials that have recently become available uh, from the uh, the Anscombe papers uh, held at the University of Pennsylvania at the Collegium Institute, uh, she has a, a little journal. If she was much of a journaler, not much of it's been made available. Um, but she's got these journals of reminiscences about her time with Wittgenstein. Mm. And she talks about how when she first met him, she felt really trapped by some philosophical questions, cornered by them, didn't know what to say about them, but couldn't let go of them. This was in her temperament, as I was saying earlier. Um, and Wittgenstein helped her to see her way past some of the blind alleys uh, that she was looking down. But she characterizes herself as entering a state of besotted reverence uh, and that this lasted uh, for a good stretch of time, that nearly everything he said sounded true to her just because he'd said it. And she had to work past this. She said that kind of overwhelming influence isn't good. Influence is good if it challenges you to think harder. Influence isn't good if you're inclined to agree with somebody because it's them. Uh, so she had to find her differences from him, find her own distinctive voice. And that was the real challenge for her. She has such force of personality, but getting out from under the influence of Wittgenstein while always remaining devoted to his memory and thinking that he had taught her so much, that was the challenge. Uh, for the others, they got Wittgenstein, I want to say mostly through Anscombe, that Anscombe was sharing around draft translations of the investigations with her friends. Uh, that all three of the others were given uh, glimpses of uh, Wittgenstein's late work uh, before the rest of the world saw it when it was being handed around like Samizdat. And uh, it was what Anscombe was taking from it. They, they got her version of it or they got the lessons of what she found important in it. And I think it goes, again, it, it fuses actually really elegantly with uh, the influence that they took from Aristotle and other uh, pre-modern figures, that they were especially interested in the idea of the form of life. Yeah. That you have to think about the lived context and experience of the human animal 
and not develop your theories in abstraction from that, or in excessive abstraction from that. And that's a lesson that you see uh, in the work, it seems to me, of all four of them. Mm. And for, for Murdoch and Midgey, they, from what I've been reading, they really revered Anscombe. They saw her as mm. the real deal. Um, yes. They, they put her on a pedestal, would that be fair to say? It's, it's, uh, it's very fair to say. Um, Foot and Murdoch, I think, uh, most particularly. Uh, Midgley and Anscombe are probably the most tenuously connected, uh, if you were to draw lines uh, yeah. Between, yeah. Uh, between each of the four. How are these two connected? Now these two, now these two. But Anscombe, uh, Midgley, is the weakest link. Um, that... Midgley was very impressed by and had quite a bit of interaction with Anscombe during their undergraduate years. And then again, when they were all back in Oxford in the late forties, but Anscombe was not as avid a correspondent as Foote and Murdoch were. <laughs> and so once Midgley left Oxford, I think the, the quality of that interaction um, uh, diminished, but Foote and Murdoch for Murdoch, as you know, as uh, as a student of her, there was always this erotic dimension to intellectual admiration, and uh, she plainly had a crush on Anscombe in the late nineteen uh, forties, um, and this was all compounded of feeling inadequate before Anscombe. Uh, Anscombe has this had this remark that Murdoch uh, quoted in her journals that no second-rate philosophy is any good and Murdoch worried am I producing second-rate philosophy uh, so she was a kind of devotee of Anscombe's um, and Foote too apprenticed herself to Anscombe they had afternoon by afternoon for a decade and a half a kind of running tutorial session where they would sit down after lunch and just talk philosophy all afternoon. And I can imagine that's quite heavy going. <laughs> yeah. Uh, people who were not in philosophy at Somerville told me about it, how it, they still could recall this image. Uh, like Barbara, Har Barbara Harvey, the historian, told me this of the two of them sitting on either side of the fireplace, tearing up Wittgenstein together, as Harvey put it. Uh, Foote has this wonderful image uh, that she gives of it. She says, I was like a cartoon character that gets run over by a steamroller and then is there all right again in the next episode. But that's what it was like for me day after day, week after week, trying ideas out, having Anscombe swap them down, trying new ones the next time. But this apprenticeship was so fruitful for her. Yeah, maybe a trolley rather than a, maybe. a steamroller. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in the last four or five years as well, people have been seeing them not just as a, uh, as a group, but as a school. Mm -hmm. um, what we've been saying, there's quite a lot of disparities in some of the things they're doing. Can we see them as a school or are they a group? Or how, how are you seeing them? I think of them as having together accomplished this really important project but not having set out to work together on a project, except sometimes in pairwise combination, that Anscombe and Foote knew that there were some synergies in their work. Foote and Murdoch taught together uh, for a time. Murdoch saw the significance of Midgley's book and uh, was very high on it uh, when that uh, first book appeared. Um, so they spotted the connections among themselves, but they never like sat down to what are we going to do mm. um, once they got well into their careers. But I do think there's an implicit project there. I have thought of this in connection with uh, Thomas Kuhn's work on the structure of scientific revolutions, where he talks about how one paradigm replaces another, but the paradigm of the fact-value dichotomy. The paradigm of, as Murdoch would have put it, quasi-existentialist creation of values. Uh, that paradigm, that way of thinking about ethics was so entrenched and they called it into question and made alternatives imaginable. And that's what gives them 
a unity as a group, I think, uh, intellectually. So apart from the fact that, you know, these are people who were university friends and stayed more or less uh, connected later on, uh, I think their importance as a group is their breaking an old orthodoxy and yeah. uh, suggesting uh, an alternative to it. Which I think at that point in time was absolutely essential to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Murdoch, most of all, kind of diagnoses the problem, uh, and uh, Anscombe and Foote most get the attention of the philosophical establishment, but as I said earlier, in a kind of critical promissory way, like this is what a better ethics would look like. And it's Midgley uh, who takes that suggestion, and she knows she's doing it. She talks about the influence that essays like Modern Moral Philosophy and Moral Beliefs had on her. Um, she takes that suggestion and uh, really puts it in the form of a positive proposal. So I imagine a lot of people listening um, are going to be fascinated by this. Not all are going to be philosophers. Uh, some will be, but may not have, you know, attempted Anscombe or might not know Foote's work. For Ben, could you give us um, something that uh, the listeners ought to go and read for each of them? Something, a, a kind of a, an introductory kind of essay or short work that you think is essential for getting into each each of these philosophers. Absolutely. And I'm going to use two criteria here, both the good point of entry and easily and cheaply accessible. Sure. <laughs> um, uh, on the assumption that like, yeah, you're really gonna troop off to the library or, or go on uh, bookshop.org uh, to try to find uh, this here. So I think, uh, let's go in alphabetical order here. For Anscombe, I would urge anyone to pick up the third volume of her collected papers on ethics, religion, and politics, which contains both papers like Modern Moral Philosophy, which can be pretty dense, uh, pretty tough going, but also a lot of her writing for uh, non-philosophical audiences, uh, for fellow Catholics, for other groups on the ethics of warfare, and she is one of the towering figures of the 20th century reviving thought on the ethics of war. So a little essay that she, a little pamphlet that she co-authored as an undergraduate is there, uh, anticipating that the Allies were going to bomb civilians and saying this can't be squared with, uh, with just war doctrine. And her wonderful pamphlet uh, decrying the honorary degree that Oxford gave to Harry Truman mm. uh, in 1956. Sure. So you've got uh, those kinds of essays in there, which really give a sense of her voice and her passion uh, and are quite accessible. So third volume of her collected papers came out from Blackwell's in 1981. Uh, for Philippa Foote, I think any of her essay collections, but I think the first essay collection, maybe above all, Virtues and Vices. Um, uh, it's uh, brought out by Oxford, uh, and the title essay written just on the occasion uh, of uh, the collection coming out uh, is a really good retrospective summary of the thinking she'd be doing about virtue and vice, putting together things that Anscombe and Murdoch had put into her ear. So that's a great first essay to read for Foote. For Midgley, I think Beast and Man or Wickedness. Um, maybe Wickedness. Beast and Man, it was her first book, and so new to this, and under the influence of her editors, she let them say, well, you should put in a bit about this, and you should put in a bit about that, and the thing grew and grew and grew. Um, and you can still see the shape of the original underneath there, but either get the essay she wrote that's kind of a precy of the whole, uh, I think it was in philosophy, called The Concept of Beastliness, which is what she wanted to call the book, Beastliness, um, and her editors prevailed on her to call it Beast and Man. But uh, the con if you can't get the concept of beastliness, read her book Wickedness, uh, which was much under her, more under her control, and is, is a brilliant and very lucid piece of writing. And for Murdoch, can we do better than the essays in The Sovereignty of Good? I love vision and choice, yeah. um, but uh, you'd have to buy the whole Existentialist and Mystics uh, volume for it or look it up in a library. So. Which is cheap enough. Which yeah, which is cheap enough, but uh, I think in terms of something that people might put on their shelves and be so delighted they have, 
uh, everybody should have a copy of Sovereignty of Good. Absolutely. I'm sure most people probably listening um, will do. And of course, everybody ought to go out and buy, probably online, but it's also available in bookstores. Your, your new book, um, you know, The Women Are Up To Something. Um, it's had some wonderful reviews. You must be very pleased. But also, I suppose, you know, doing a, a lot of promotional work for it. So it's great that you've, you've um, given some time for, for the podcast. He was really so good. I guess your mind must be thinking about the future, thinking about um, new projects and anything in, in uh, continuing in this vein or where, 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 where do you go next? I suppose. I, I, I think so I much. continue in this vein. Um, and it's a question of with what subject or subjects. Um, when I say I have to, I mean that uh, life and time are finite and that you do this much work to bring yourself up to speed on a period that's not your own, knowing you're never really going to understand it like someone who inhabited it, but still. Um, I feel like now that's a trust. This is what I know the most about how to talk about. So I've been imagining the possibility of a book about philosophy on the radio. Ah. During the heart of certainly uh, Anscombe Foot and Murdoch's philosophical careers during the 1950s, the BBC Third program was highly concerned with philosophy. Uh, some might even think obsessed with philosophy, that there was a philosophy talk coming on or upcoming almost all the time and dialogues between Oxford professors on philosophical topics. And so there's this little window in which it was understood by these guardians of culture that philosophy was a thing that the public should be up on and should be introduced to. And I'm interested in how that idea got going. I'm interested mm -hmm. in what people did with that opening. And I'm interested in the decline and fall. Um, I talk a little bit in the book about um, Gellner's attack on linguistic philosophy uh, at the end of the 1950s and on beyond the fringe about beyond the fringe making fun of it uh, in the early 60s and so there's this crashing and burning uh, but for this wind for this little window of time philosophy was this strangely prominent it seems to a contemporary now strangely prominent uh, public concern and I'd like to understand that better. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. And and again, I, one that hasn't been nearly investigated enough. I know there's been, you know, some republications of some of these talks, but to put them in context and to, and to give that historical, biographical, archival, you know, material and, and bring it all together. Well, you know, I'll, I'll very much look forward to it. No, and from a selfish point of view, I hope it isn't um, another decade or so until it comes out, but I'm sure it'll take quite some time to bring it all together. It could be. <laughs> <laughs> well, We'll have to see. Obviously, you've got a lot of, uh, lot of calls on your time, both at college and at home. But, uh, and, uh, Professor Benjamin Lipscomb, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and, and talking about the new book. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, for those of you who haven't bought it yet, I don't know what you're waiting for because you can find a link uh, to the book uh, in, the, uh, in the podcast um, blurb just below, uh, just below um, what you're listening to now. So um, my, my thanks to uh, Professor Benjamin Lipscomb for coming on and my thanks to you all for listening.